Today officially is the last day of Advent, and as we celebrate Advent together, remembering Christ's first Advent, that he would come as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, as we'll look at today. We also associate with Advent words, and those words are love, hope, joy, and peace. One of the things about the Christmas season is that we as Christians understand that that's what Christmas really is about. The love, the hope, the joy, and the peace that God has given us through his son, Jesus. And so when we look upon a manger, when we look upon one of those scenes at somebody's house, maybe they have it decorated outside, maybe you have one inside of your house that you walk by all the time, or in our case at our house, our kids move it all over the place and make it unorganized. But as we look at those things, it can become just a traditional thing. It can just become something that is cute, something that we're used to seeing. But what that is depicting, what we are celebrating during Christmas is the Savior of the world being born. The one and only one who can forgive us of our sins and conquer our true enemy, which is sin and which was death. And Jesus has conquered that for us as believers here this morning. And that is why we celebrate. That's why we get excited to talk about that. Over the past few weeks, as we've been talking about the Christmas season, we've been looking at different covenants that God has established with Israel, and thus has established with us as well as his people, promises that he has made. Uh, Pastor uh, Spencer looked at Genesis 3 and saw how sin came into the world and how God had made a covenant saying that there was one to come that would have his heel bruised, but who would crush the head of the serpent. And how that was Christ, foretelling of Christ. And then I had the opportunity to preach on Abraham and the covenant that God had made with Abraham. How God had chose Abraham. When Abraham wasn't looking for God, God had chose Abraham and said, you are mine, and from you will, be, will come many nations, and I will be your God. He said this to Abraham, this promise that he made there in Genesis. And how we would see that flow out all the way again through Christ and how Christ will fulfill that and how we could become part of Abraham's family. Then last week, Pastor Scott had preached on the covenant that God had made with Moses and with Israel at Mount Sinai, how he gave them the law. You remember that? He'd given them the law, but there was, there were, he was saying, you need to obey this law. Or I'm going to give you this law and you need to obey this law and I am going to be your God. And so we realized as Pastor Scott was preaching, we probably realized this before this, but it's, it's hard for us to live up to that law. You know, you read even just the Ten Commandments and how quickly we fall short of even the Ten Commandments, something we talk about all the time and how Israel even did that. Remember, uh, he said, I am your God, have no other gods before me. And before Moses could even get down with the tablets, what were they doing? Worshiping another God that they had built with their hands, right? That they had built with the earrings and the gold that God had given them from Egypt. They were already worshiping another God. They already fell short of the law. And so we find ourselves in trouble with that. And so Pastor Scott had talked about how what God has done through Christ is he's fulfilled the law in Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And what we couldn't do, he did for us. And so the Bible tells us that by faith, by faith in Christ and what he has done, we can be saved, we can become his child, we can be forgiven of our sin so that we're no longer judged on the law based on the law. We're judged on what Christ has done and he has fulfilled it perfectly. We can find salvation in Christ because he fulfills that covenant that God had made there with Moses. 
Well, today we're going to focus on the, our last covenant that we're going to look at, and it's the covenant that God had made with David. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's in the Old Testament there. There's, there's Bibles there in front of you, and the pew rack in front of you. If you don't have one, I'd encourage you to take that Bible out and go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 17 together. As you turn there, what had happened in Israel's history after Moses, as they wandered in the desert, God ends up giving them land. Joshua goes and helps conquer the land. And then God gives the people judges who help rule over the people. There's also prophets who are speaking the word of God to Israel. Well, it comes to a point in the history of Israel where Israel looks around them and they realize that all these other nations have something that they do not have, a king. They have a king, someone to lead them, someone to guide them, and they want a king. And so they, they appeal to God saying, we want to have a king. And they go to Samuel, who is the prophet of God, and say, go to God, we want to have a king. Now this does not surprise God. I want us to know that. It doesn't take God back. God actually had already established in Deuteronomy that they would have a king someday, and this is how the king should function, and this is what the king should do. But also, this really was an affront to God, because God was their king. God had been their king. God had been their leader, the one telling them where to go, been leading them and guiding them. And kind of what Israel was saying is, God, we don't see you. We want someone we can see. We want somebody who's really going to go before us here. And so God actually says, fine, you can have a king. And so he tells Samuel to anoint Saul. And Saul becomes the first king of Israel. But this doesn't go so well because Saul sins. Saul disobeys God. He does things that he should not be doing. And so God actually says, removes his spirit from Saul, that this is not my king anymore. And he tells Samuel, you need to go and to anoint somebody else. So God leads him to a man named Jesse. And he says, from the family of Jesse, I will anoint a king. Go and look at his sons, and I'll tell you which son it will be. Well, if you know the story, Samuel sees all different of, of his sons, all of them. And he's like, oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. No, no, no. God says no. He gets to the point where there's no more kids. And he says, do you not have any other kids? He says, yeah, I got one other one. But even his own dad said, yes, but it's not that one. That's not the king. Not that guy. But, but Samuel says, I, I need to see him. He sees David and God says, this is the one. This is the king. This, is, this will be the king of Israel. So Samuel then anoints him king. Well, it plays out that he isn't king right away. Saul is still king. Saul ends up dying. And then Samuel officially anoints David as king over Israel after Saul's death. Well, when David becomes king, we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is why I told you to turn here, that God makes a covenant with David. Beginning in verse 8, I want us to read. It says, Now therefore... <clears throat> Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. All I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you 
that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God makes a covenant with David. And real quickly, there's six real important parts to this. First, it's an unconditional covenant, just like the one with Abraham. No bearing on David. This is all God. God says, I'm establishing with, this you, with you forever. This is what's going to happen. No ifs, ands, or buts. So there's no, there's no, if you do this, David, this will happen. We, we don't see this here. It's unconditional on God's part. What God promises is a few things. He says, I will give a place for Israel. He says this in verse 10. There will be a place for them. And this is Jerusalem. Verse 10 also promises David that this kingdom is going to have everlasting peace. There'll be peace. Remember, he said, you won't be bothered anymore by the people around you. He also promises David that his son will build a house for God. This comes because uh, what we didn't read is David told God, hey, I live in this great house of cedar. I need to build a house for you, God. And God says, no, this isn't your job. This isn't what I called you to do. But he says, your son will. Your son will build a house for me. But he also tells David something about his son. He says, your son will be disciplined for disobedience. Know this. He also tells David that he is going to establish within David's line a kingdom forever. That from his lineage, from his family, is going to be the true king. This is where these promises get messianic. This is where we start to see the Messiah being talked about. And then lastly, he promises, God says, I promise to keep my steadfast love with them forever. With your son and with your kingdom forever. This, this hesed love that we've talked about, that word hesed, this covenantal steadfast love that God has for his people, God promises to David and to his lineage. So we see this play out in Israel. David ends up passing away. He dies. His son Solomon becomes king. Solomon, we know, is very wise. He is very great. And we see actually that Solomon does what God had said would happen. Solomon builds this temple, has this, has this great temple made uh, for the Lord, and it's a big celebration. And even at that point, Solomon realizes <laughs> nothing, nothing we make can house God. He, under, he understands that. But he, but he has this temple made, but there's a problem. A problem happens when we look at this covenant because we might think, well, see, Solomon fulfilled it. But there's a problem with Solomon. There's, there's, a, there's a few, actually. But Solomon sins. He sins against God. He actually establishes false places of worship that he leads Israel to worship at. He's led away by these wives that he marries that are from other countries. And so he sins against God. But there's other problems. Solomon dies. It says that this kingdom is going to be forever. But Solomon dies. He's just a man. And he dies. And that great temple that he built, this, this great majestic temple that's supposed to house God forever, there's a problem with it too. It gets destroyed. 
Within Israel's history, because of their sin, God allows them to be overthrown by the Babylonians, and the temple gets destroyed. They completely destroy the temple. And so while Solomon, yes, fulfills some of the promises that God had made to David, and we could, we could look at him and say, yes, we see these prophecies coming true, there are some of, the, some of these that Solomon just simply couldn't keep. His kingdom just simply could not last forever. And because of his sin, he faced, he faced God's wrath. And, he, and it was something that he just simply could not overcome. And so when we look in Scripture, when we look at the Psalms, like Psalm 87 that Pastor Spencer read, and we look in some other places, we see that what Israel understood is they understood this covenant that God had made with David to actually mean something future. That, that what was being pointed here, what God was talking about, that there would be a king to come that would be Messiah, that would be a, a, a savior of the people. And so we see this, like I said, in the Psalms, and we see this in other places in the scriptures. One of them that I want to point out to you is found in Jeremiah. Because in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 through 6, he would say this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so we have this great prophet of God declaring that a righteous branch is supposed to come from David. And, he, and what he's saying is it hasn't come. It's not, it is not here yet. It's not, it's not there. It's not established, but it's something that they are looking forward to. When will this righteous branch come forward? Well, Christmas is the answer. Jesus is the answer. You say, well, Pastor Tim, where do you get that from? Well, we get that from the New Testament. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, the very beginning, the very first six verses, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul is establishing here. What is he saying? He's saying, this is the seed of David. This is the righteous branch. He is the son of David that was promised, that was called for. We have all kinds of places we can go in scripture and you can read these on your own. I'm not going to read them for you this morning. But in the very beginning of Matthew, there's a real boring section that talks about lineage. It does. It just says names of people, but that's important. Why? It shows Jesus came from David. It shows his history comes from David. If that's not enough, there's another lineage in Luke chapter 3, uh, verse 23 through 38 that does the same thing. Because it's important to know that the Savior comes from David because this is the promise, this is the covenant that God had established with David. And so we see one of the first things, one of the first promises that God makes with David is that from your lineage, a kingdom, that Jesus fulfills this because he's from the lineage of David. We start talking about the temple and we start talking about how it said your son is going to build the temple. Well, Jesus talked about this as well. The Bible declares to us that Jesus himself is the true temple of God. 
Yes, God had promised David that his son would build the house of God. And, and again, Solomon did that. But that temple was destroyed. At the time of Jesus, the temple that would stand would be known as Herod's temple. That's the temple that was there. This temple would also be destroyed. In 70 AD, it would be ransacked and completely destroyed. But Jesus said some things during his life that caused some problems. This isn't Jesus speaking, but in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this about, God, about Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In the original Greek, what that's saying is this, he tabernacled with us. The word has come and tabernacled with us. Just like the tabernacle that they would take in the wilderness with them where God would reside, the word has tabernacled with us. It is, it is here with us. Later when being questioned in John chapter 2, Jesus would say, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us of doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, our minds, when we read that covenant with David, we think building, temple building, and it's going to be built. But again, you got to remember, our minds are not like the mind of God. And what Jesus says is, I'm the, t I'm the temple. I am the temple that you've been waiting for. Go ahead and destroy it. And you watch, in three days, I will build it anew. And that's what he did in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. Built the temple anew. And so he fulfills that promise that God had made with David. He is the true temple. But also, we see that Jesus is a king that rules and reigns forever. So he's not just some piddly little king who has a who has his kingdom for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. No, what we've been promised in Scripture is what we have in Jesus as king, is he is a king forever. You remember when Jesus was on earth, and we celebrate this around Easter time, the, the triumphal entry. There's a big celebration as Jesus is heading into town, into Jerusalem, and he's riding in on a, on a colt there, on a, on a donkey, and he's going into into town and the people are screaming Hosanna, right? And they, they are worshiping him and they are, they are praising him. And it's interesting what they say to him when they praise him. In Mark 11, 7 through 10, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. They were declaring, they were declaring right there, here's the righteous branch. Here is the king that we have been waiting for and he is finally riding into Jerusalem, the promised city, and it's all going to happen. The kingdom is going to happen. Here is our king, what we've so looked forward to. Here is what we have waited for. Yet we understand now that God had different plans, didn't he? The kingdom wasn't coming like those people thought. The kingdom wasn't coming in a way where Jesus would establish his rule and sit on the throne and suppress all of the enemies and kick the Romans out. That's what the people wanted. But this wasn't the work that God was doing. What needed to happen was Jesus needed to go into Jerusalem for one reason and one reason only, and that was to die. 
He was going into town to die so he could truly be our king. Because when Jesus was killed, he didn't stay there very long. Jesus rose again. Three days later, he rose again, came to life again. And in doing that, he established the reign of his kingdom forever. It is a kingdom that doesn't end because the king never dies. And there's an important part in scripture that we seem to like to overlook a lot that really establishes this even stronger. But after, you remember after Jesus rose again, what did he do? He went around and he saw people. Remember, he talked to all kinds of different people. But when we get to the book of Acts, an interesting scene happens. It's a scene we've tried to replicate in our programs at times and it, it probably doesn't do it justice of what really happened. He's sitting there talking to the people and all of a sudden, Jesus ascends. It says he ascends on high and everybody's just staring and they're looking and they're like, what, what in the world is going on? And he disappears. And they continue to stare and they continue to look. And you remember the angels had to come and tell them, listen, go. This Jesus who has went, he's, he's going to come back. But what does the ascension mean? Well, the ascension is so important for us because what it means is to establish the, the fact and the truth that Jesus ascended. Why? He ascended to be with the Father. To where the Bible tells us that right now, this very instant, currently, Jesus himself is sitting at the right hand uh, of the Father in all rule, authority, and power. And so Jesus is the acting king. He's established himself as the king that we have been waiting for, that Israel has been waiting for, that we so desperately need. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 18, it speaks of it, and I think it'll be on the screen. Hebrews... We read Hebrews a lot. I, got, I say this as a side. This is just a little help. Hebrews is a very confusing book. You need to read it on your own and understand it. Me and Pastor Scott were talking about it this week. But it, it really tells us so much about what Christ has fulfilled. Hebrews 10, 12 to 18. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. See, the writer of Hebrews is establishing what, what this king has done. This king truly has saved his people. It's a salvation that is complete. It is a freedom from death that is actually, truly freedom. It's real freedom. Again, in Hebrews, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver, all, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think about our current state, you know, and, and our leaders and the people that we're supposed to look up to. And to be quite honest, I don't know if we should look up to any of them. I don't know if they even know what I go through on a daily basis. When we look at our politicians, right, and our, our presidents and all these different ones who come along, most of them are very rich people. A lot of them have had a lot of easy stuff. Now, I'm not saying all of it's easy. They've had difficulties in life, but I really start to question, do you really know what I've been through? Do you really know anything about me? Do you really know anything that I need? And what are you doing to show me that you actually care? Right? This might be a question that you've had about different things. 
Well, when it comes to our Savior, we look to God and we say, God, how do we know you care? The answer is found in that manger. It says that God wrapped himself in flesh. And why do you do that? To know exactly what you're going through at all times. Every pain, every hurt, every struggle. Jesus had pain, Jesus had hurt, Jesus had sickness, he had illness, he had struggles in his life. The Bible tells us that he was completely broken poor. No place to lay his head. No place to call home. And in fact, when he actually went back home to the place he was born, what'd they do? They kicked him out. They kicked him out of town. So we don't want you here. Jesus went through all of this stuff and he did it completely perfect and sinless. And why did he do that? Well, according to the book of Hebrews, so that we could look at him and say, you actually are a king who knows exactly what I'm going through. So much so that you lived it. You walked it. You didn't sit on your throne that you could have done and just play puppeteer or push some money around or do some ordinance that you think might help the common people. No, you came and you lived with the common people and you died as a common person. Why? So that the common person could actually know their true king, could actually be saved by his grace. We can have freedom in Christ. Freedom, maybe not from our enemies, maybe not from swords and hurt and difficulty, no. But the Bible tells us what we have is we have freedom in Christ, freedom from sin. So that sin no longer enslaves us. So that when I go before God, I don't have to worry about him saying, well, Tim, what did you do for me? Tim, why should I let you in? What did you do for me? Because the fact is, according to what Pastor Scott preached last week, I would say, well, I failed a lot. I tried. Well, trying don't mean anything. If I take my car to you and you say I tried, I don't need you to try. I need you to succeed to make my car work. Thanks for trying. In fact, you wasted my time, right? No, I need it to work. So when I stand before God, I don't have anything to say to him. I had some kids and I tried to coach and be nice to people. You know, I opened doors for people. I didn't cuss a lot. I don't know, right? You just say these things, try to think of all these things and it doesn't, it doesn't work. Because the fact is, I would be a rule breaker before God. And so the king that I needed to save me has done it. Jesus has done it. And because he's conquered death, he reigns forever. Now, I think we must admit that right now when we look around, although we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and that he's defeated Satan, that we still live in a time that's difficult We still live in a time of sin. We still live in a time of death. Even yesterday, I was in here with a funeral. Death still happens. Difficulty still continues to happen. and We still see hurt. We still see shame. So we might ask, what does this mean that Jesus is on the throne now? Well, it means this as his children I talked to you about how today is the last day of Advent, the day that we celebrate that Jesus has come. That's what Advent is. Jesus has come. But the Bible has promised us that there is a second Advent to come. When Jesus left, it was told that he would come again in the same manner. And so we have promises that still remain, promises that 
we haven't seen come to be realized. But as Christians, we believe that they will come to be realized. That it's going to happen. And our, our hope is in this because our hope is in Christ. And we believe him to be the true king who keeps his promises. In the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, it speaks of this. Revelation 22, verse 1 through 7 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You see, this series that we've been doing really covers from beginning to end. The covenants that God has made with his people are established for all time. And as Christians, we've been given the playbook. We've been, we've been given the outcome. We know the promise that Jesus has promised us that he will come back for his people and that he will establish a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more struggle. There's no more pain. There's no more aches. There's no more guilt. There's, there's no more shame. There's no more wondering. There's no more what ifs. It's him established on the throne forever. There's no more nations to attack. There's no more land that needs to be won. Completely fulfilled in Christ's second advent, we're promised. And so during the Christmas season, yes, we celebrate the birth of Jesus and we celebrate the work that Jesus has done for us. And we hold it tight as believers. But we also look forward to that promised day that he's given us of when he will return of when we don't have to see the effects of sin anymore but we get to spend eternity with our king our savior our lord and worship him forever we get to worship him always psalm chapter 2 i'm going to end with this psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm talks about a king. It says this in verses 7 through 12. I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want to encourage you with this, this Christmas season. I have no doubt that many of you will spend time with family and friends, and you will have some good times. 
I really hope that to be true. You'll have times that you can cherish memories that you will have that you'll get to hold on forever. And I hope that you get to experience that. But I also know that over this next week, leading up to Christmas, there's going to be times when you are reminded that there are still kings of this earth that rule and reign who do not have your best interest in heart. They don't care about sin. They don't care about your salvation. They're not worried about God. And it's going to cause you to struggle some this week. And you're going to wonder, maybe like the psalmist would say in Psalm 2 even before, why do the nations rage against God? And you'll remember it's because they do not recognize God as God. They do not recognize Jesus as the Savior of the world or as the King. They've not really truly given their life to him. And because of that, we find ourselves in a lot of difficult situations that us celebrating Christmas just doesn't solve. Ah, we can get together and hold hands and get around a tree that's all lit up and pretty and sing even Christian songs. I've heard of on NBC, ABC, CBS, singing songs about my Savior, all excited and happy. But if the Lord doesn't return first, December 26th is going to happen. Christmas is over. And then January 1st is going to happen. And all this mess continues to play out. I want you to remember this. When that starts to happen, when you start to realize that and think about that, remember what was read in Psalm 2. That there is a king, Jesus, who has conquered our enemy. And though these kings may still rage against him, the fact of the matter is they have completely lost. There is no victory in what they are searching for. There is no victory in their plan. We as Christians, saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, have been given victory, and it's the only victory that's available in this world. Victory from sin, victory from the, from the reign of death, and from the reign of hell and God's wrath. This is why we can celebrate Christmas with joy, with hope, with peace, and with love. Oh yes, the nation's rage. Oh yes, I hear it, and it can cause me to get nervous, it can cause me to get frustrated, but let me not forget, Christmas is real. Jesus has come. He really is the king, and we know how this ends. It ends with us worshiping and praising our king forever, uninterrupted, in pure joy and peace forever with him. To me, that's an amazing thought. To me, that's a very exciting thing to think about. And it makes celebrating Christmas even more worth it. And so I hope that you carry that with you, with your family, with your friends, and whatever it is that you might be doing to remember why we celebrate Christmas and what Jesus has done and how he has fulfilled the covenants that God has promised for us. And he's promised to come again, and we look forward to that day. Let's bow together and pray. Scott's going to come and lead us in a song at the end of service, and then I'll come and close us after. But as we sing, it's a time for you to respond to the word of God. God, I pray that this morning, everybody in this room would declare wholeheartedly and truthfully that you are their king. God, I, 
I know that that can be difficult because so often we want to be king. We want to rule and reign over our life. God, your word tells us that the gift that you have given us on Christmas in Jesus is that he is our king. That you have a plan for our life. That you know what's best for us. And that is to fall on our face before Jesus. To say, you are Lord and Savior. I give my life to you. God, I have no idea who in this room has all done that. But I pray that you would open their eyes to that truth. That you would soften their heart. So that they could see what Jesus has done for them. How he has fulfilled the law how he is the king, how he is the high priest that we so desperately needed. He is the sacrifice that we needed. God, I pray for those people in here this morning who are really working hard for their salvation. They're trying on their own to be good. They're, they're trying to do whatever they think it might be that needs to be done in order to be saved for you to, for you to shed grace on them. But God, I pray that you would help them to see that's not what this is about. That salvation is found in the work of Jesus and what he has done. That he is our savior. And we must put all of our chips on his table. That, that he has done everything for us. God, that those people who are so weary from trying to run and do this, God, help them to stop to see the truth. God, only you can do that work. And so I pray that you would do that in their life. God, for those of us who are Christians who've been saved for a long time, I pray that this Christmas we would remember what it's about. That we'd be willing to share with other people the good news that the king has come, that the savior reigns, that his kingdom is forever. Nothing will ever vanquish it or shatter it. And God, I pray that we'd be able to celebrate that with friends, with family, with people around us. So God, as we sing this last song, I pray that we would worship you with it. Help us to honor you with every word that we sing, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.